apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you have heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is the faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told you, uh, also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you in the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present, present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you, Gilbert. Okay. Uh, we're continuing in our Bible overview, and we come today to Colossians chapter 1, and embedded in the passage we had read to us is this majestic passage about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it stands alongside uh, other sort of amazing passages in the New Testament about Christ, particularly the prologue in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, if you remember that one, and then also Hebrews 1 chapter, chapter 1 uh, verses 2 to 4. So uh, let me briefly um, tell you about the aim this morning before I pray for it and then we'll look more closely. Uh, what I'm going to do firstly is set the context of this passage in the context of the whole overview series. Uh, then I'll set the context in terms of the situation for the Colossians, and then we'll briefly sort of have a pencil outline of the, the verses prior to this passage, which starts in verse 15. But we're going to try and get to and spend most of our time focusing on the passage, uh, which starts at verse 13 and goes through to verse 20. 
and then we're going to have some time at the end to reflect on the implications of this. All right, so that's where we're going to go. Uh, let me pray for us uh, before we look more closely at this. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing salvation plan, uh, conceived before the creation of the world and progressively revealed throughout Old Testament history, uh, inaugurated the fulfillment of it in the coming of Christ, and now we wait for its final consummation with the return of Christ as we continue to plot this amazing, unfolding, uh, historical salvation storyline, uh, help us to have a clearer grasp and a clearer sense of wonder of all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that you will do for us in the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. And may that increase our faith now in him. Amen. Okay, so in this Bible overview series, uh, we are, as I said, tracking the trajectory of what we're calling this uh, salvation history, uh, this Bible story arc. Uh, here we have a, a diagram of it, and we've been seeing, of course, that as we're moving along, uh, we have seen how promise in the Old Testament era has finally given way to the fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But we have seen also that not everything is yet fulfilled. All that is promised has not yet come to pass, and we still wait for that, and ultimately that will be here at the end of the story arc, uh, that is the new creation. And so... Uh, Let's think about the New Testament letters. Uh, the Christians in the fledgling first century Christian church faced many spiritual perils. Uh, the Christians in that church then had heard and understood and embraced the gospel, but they faced many real dangers of being led astray by false teachers. And if they embraced this false teaching, whatever it be, they would in fact be personally derailed from this salvation story arc. And hence, the New Testament letters were written to, continue to counter false teaching and to keep people on track, ultimately, to the new creation. So if you recall in our last sermon in this series, which is a while ago now, before the holidays, uh, we placed the New Testament letters in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, here again, we have this, um, just to remind you, we have this sort of diagrammatic representation of the, the books of the Bible being like a library. But the, we said the, the Bible breaks down actually into three parts. Uh, here is the central part, the Gospels, which is all about Jesus. And everything that comes prior to that, the Old Testament, uh, promises and predicts the coming of Jesus, the rescuer. But then this third section here, everything that comes after the Gospels, are the New Testament letters. They look back on the, the Gospels and show how they are the fulfillments of everything that has been come before, but also direct our gaze to the very end of that salvation story arc to the, the return of Christ. And they say, this is how we should now live in the light of what has happened as recorded in the Gospels. So, in Colossians, we have, of course, and, and there it is, uh, there it is, Colossians, uh, one of these New Testament letters uh, written by Paul. And this is written to uh, a set of Christians uh, in the city of Colossae, and the aim of it is to stop them being derailed from what we're calling this salvation story arc to stop them being led astray by false teaching. Uh, so in 62 AD, Paul writes to this young church and writes this letter. Uh, the church was in the province of Asia, and Paul at the time was writing from Rome where he's under house arrest. We actually know that Paul never actually visited the city of Colossae. Uh, here is a map of his missionary journeys, well, particularly the third missionary journey. And we see that here is Colossae, uh, but he tracked past that and ended up spending most of his time in Ephesus. We know he spent up to three years 
in Ephesus from 54 to 56 AD. And it seems that during that time in Ephesus, uh, a young man by the name of Epaphras came to faith through Paul's evangelistic ministry. Uh, And Epaphras had then in turn taken the gospel back to his home city of, and you guessed it, uh, Colossae. And through him taking the gospel back to Colossae, a church had been formed. And so now seven years later, with Paul now in prison in Rome, Epaphras visits him in Rome and brings a report of the state of affairs in the church at Colossae. And whilst there is much that warms Paul's heart, there are also some matters which cause him deep, deep concern. And it prompts him to write this letter to the Colossians. Now, the actual nature of the problems at Colossae are not stated directly and explicitly in the letter. However, we get a variety of clues in the letter. Uh, Sometimes when we read the New Testament letters, it's a bit like sitting in a railway carriage with someone who speaks on their phone with an irritatingly loud voice. You can't hear what the person on the other end is saying, but you get a pretty good idea. You can piece it together from the responses you hear from your insensitive fellow passenger. And so it often is with the New Testament letters. We can't hear what report Epaphras brought to Paul, but we can piece it together by listening to Paul's responses. And it was seen that some new teachers, actually false teachers, had come to Colossae. And they were causing the Colossi Christians to doubt. These false teachers were calling into question whether Epaphras, the guy who actually told them initially about Jesus, whether he had actually told them all they needed to know. In other words, a full gospel. And these false teachers were also maintaining that starting with Christ was all well, but they needed something else in addition to Christ to experience true spiritual fullness. Uh, It's likely that these false teachers were forerunners of a movement which became very prominent in the second century AD. Uh, It was later called Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnosticism was a movement that claimed it had access to secret knowledge. And if you got the secret knowledge, it would lead to a superior level of spiritual life. And we actually see elements of this uh, evident in the letter. Firstly, there's this theme of um, spiritual fullness. That gets a lot of airtime in Colossians. And it seems that these teachers were offering access to a fuller, superior level of Christian experience. What they were saying is what you have currently in the gospel, Epaphras bore, is incomplete, but we can give you what you now lack, this deeper knowledge of God and a greater experience of his power. Come with us, follow us. Uh, They were saying, look, we've got access to this secret knowledge. Epaphras hasn't told you all you need to know. Uh, The gospel that he's proclaimed, it's insufficient, it's incomplete. Uh, The other theme in the letter, which is very prominent, in addition to fullness, is the theme of freedom. And it's quite likely that these teachers were effectively touting a deliverance ministry. They probably claimed uh, this unique insight into the powers of evil and their ability to offer special protection from evil spiritual forces. So, there's the background. And with this background in mind, Paul's opening statements in the letter now take on a new relevance and clarity. Because what we see is this. 
uh, Paul wastes no time in assuring them, look guys, you are true Christians. And the gospel you have received is the truth. It's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Look again at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Do you want to know what the hallmarks of a true Christian are? Well, we actually have them here in these verses. They are faith, hope, and love. Uh, you could say that faith, hope, and love are the holy trinity of Christian authenticity. Faith, hope, and love are the hallmarks of God's work in the life of a person. The evidence of a genuine Christian is firstly faith, faith in Christ. Secondly, love, love for other people, particularly other Christians. But here is the surprise. Surely you would expect Christian hope to be the product of faith and love. But actually, it's the reverse. Look again at verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. You see, that is the gospel, the proclamation of what is yet to come, what is stored up for us in heaven. And it generates faith in Christ and love for God's people. And that was the gospel that had been declared to these Christians. Uh, it did hold out incredible benefits in the present, uh, forgiveness, reconciliation with God. But the majority of the benefits held out by this gospel are in the future, at the end of the salvation story arc, in the new creation. And that's the heart of the gospel, the promise of future blessing for which we have to wait now. You see, it's probably quite likely that these false teachers were actually saying, you'd have to wait. You can have it now. You can have this spiritual fullness now. Just follow us. But Paul is saying, no. The gospel promises amazing things now, but the majority and the heart of what it promises is in the future. Therefore, wait patiently. So, in verse 6, Paul continues to reassure these Colossi Christians that the gospel they've heard is the true gospel, and that Empaphras indeed has been a reliable and trustworthy emissary. Verse 6, all over the world, uh, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You have learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Let's keep moving. Uh, in verse 9 onwards, 
Paul moves from affirming that they are true Christians to praying that they will continue as true Christians. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of His will. What is the knowledge of His will that Paul is referring to here? But it's not talking about whether John should marry Sheila or Henrietta. It's God's will in a far more profound sense. It's God's will in terms of the salvation story arc. It's God's will in terms of what we've been seeing in this whole overview series. God's salvation purposes anchored in Christ. And did you notice what the results would be as they grow in their knowledge of God's will and their grasp of this salvation story arc? It will guide them. It will inform them. It will transform the way they live. Verse 10. And we pray this, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. And next comes Paul's masterstroke. Next we see how Paul helps these Christians to grow in their knowledge of God's will centered in Christ. Because next he starts to unpack in this majestic passage who Christ is and the implications of it. Let me give you a brief roadmap of it and it's outlined in your handout in the bulletin. Uh, verses 15 to 18, Paul reflects on Christ's supremacy. He is the Lord over all. And then in verses 19 to 20, Paul moves on to the implications of Christ's supremacy. That is his sufficiency. He is sufficient for all our spiritual needs. And you see, this is the most effective weapon in defeating this false teaching. This Gnostic teaching, in effect, drain the swamp. Make it clear that if you have Christ, you have it all. You have everything. And then there will be no temptation to move away from Christ in pursuit of some secret knowledge. So let's dig down on this amazing and majestic passage. Firstly, Christ is supreme Lord over all. And it starts in verse 15 with this statement. He is the image of the invisible Christ. What was that first hymn we sung? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. God is invisible, but through the incarnation, God has made himself visible. 
Uh, John's gospel, of course, in that prologue, is in full support of this. Uh, John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And how has the glory of the invisible God been made manifest to people through Christ, through the incarnation, God taking on human flesh? John 1 verse 14, uh, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, verse 15 in Colossians 1 continues. Uh, here's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Well, I'm sure as Tasso and Sophie can tell us, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses point to this verse as supporting their belief that Jesus is not actually the Son of God. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses maintain that He is a created being. He is the firstborn over all creation. He's not actually the Creator God. Uh, they claim this verse states that there was a point at which He was born. However, of course, when we get to verses 16 to 17, we actually will see that it would need some pretty fancy footwork to allow such an interpretation to stand. What does it mean when it says Christ is the firstborn over all creation? Well, it's not the firstborn in the sense of being created. Rather, the term firstborn is used here in the sense of being the Father's heir of all things. Ultimately, Christ is the one in line, the firstborn to inherit everything. He will be the supreme Lord over the cosmos. So let's look at verse 16. That Christ is not a created being. Rather, the whole created order in time and space owes its existence to Christ. Its origin is found in Him. Verse 16 again of Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So you see, when we read the Genesis account of creation, it's all about Christ. It's about what Christ did, his creative activity. Christ is the one in Genesis who spoke and it came into being. He is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. Everything that there is, both physical and spiritual, has been created by him. Every authority, whether good or evil, ultimately owes its existence and its power to Christ. See what that means. It means that the battle between good and evil is not a conflict between two gods. Uh, Satan is powerful, but at the end of the day, Satan is a created being. He's not the creator. Uh, that's why when we get to the Old Testament book of Job, of course, Satan needs to get God's permission before he can afflict and test Job. 
And it means, therefore, that there is nothing that the powers of evil can do to influence the destiny of the person who is in Christ. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 28, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, I give them eternal life, speaking of everyone who puts their faith in him, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand because he's the supreme Lord of all. And not only was the creation made by Christ, but it was also made for Christ. Verse 16 continues. All things were created by him and for him. You see, Christ is the Lord who reigns supreme over the cosmos. And of course, when Christ returns, then the heir will enter visibly into his full inheritance before a watching world. Uh, verse 17 says this, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, see, Christ is actively sustaining this creation at this very moment. His power and will enable all the laws of nature to continue to function. By Christ's power, the planets continue to orbit around the sun, and the electrons continue to rotate around the nucleus. And I know that's a misguided understanding of atomic structure, but it's a nice poetic summary. So Christ is the supreme Lord over the creation. But then in verse 18, we see Christ is also the supreme Lord over the new creation, that is, over the church. He is the head of the new humanity, church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Christ is the sole head of the church. Uh, he has what we call primacy. That means he is the most important. No other rival can demand allegiance. Uh, the 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. In chapter 25, verse 6. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. Verse 18 continues. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. It's talking, of course, about his resurrection. In his resurrection, Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, that title not only means that he is the first to be raised immortal from the dead, although it clearly does mean that, but as firstborn, it also means that many will be born after him. Those who trust in Christ will be a great multitude that will also be raised incorruptible at the general resurrection when Christ returns. And in case we've not yet got the point, verse 18 ends with that headline summary statement. And it says this. So that in everything he might have supremacy. Well, I guess you've picked up the vibe by now. 
Christ is the supreme Lord over everything and everyone in this creation and in the new creation to come. So, in verses 19 to 20, we move from a consideration of Christ's supremacy to Christ's sufficiency. And of course, the two are linked. The implication of Christ's supremacy is His sufficiency. Think about it. If Christ is the supreme Lord, then if we have Christ, we have everything we could possibly need. And we're going to see that we, uh, Christ is sufficient in His person, verse 19, and in His work, in verse 20. So, uh, verse 19, in His person. Uh, we've already noted uh, that fullness is a prominent theme in the letter. And it seems evident, as I mentioned, that the false teachers were saying that God still had more of himself to give to these Christians apart from Christ. These false teachers were saying, yeah, union by faith with Christ, that is not sufficient for spiritual fullness. You need a further supplemental work of God. But verse 29 leaves us in no doubt that Christ is sufficient for us in his person. He is all we need. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. You see, it means there is no deficiency of God in the incarnation. In Christ, there is both full deity and perfect humanity. And then in verse 20 it moves on to consider the sufficiency of Christ in His work. Just as there's nothing deficient in Christ's person, we also see there's nothing deficient in Christ's work. Verse 20, and it says this, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. Do you see? The incarnation prepares the way for the atonement. Verse 19 prepares the way for verse 20. In verse 19 it says that nothing of God's fullness is lacking in Christ. And verse 20 asserts that nothing in the universe is outside the range of God's reconciling work in Christ. So, a few words in application. In conclusion, let's draw the strands of what we've seen together and reflect on what it means for us today. Uh, Paul was praying that these Colossi Christians and us would grow in the knowledge of God's will. And we've seen that the God's will is indeed his plan for Christ to reconcile all things and to reign over all people. Christ is the supreme Lord and sufficient Savior. Do you remember why Paul was praying that these Colossi Christians and us would grasp God's will centered in Christ more clearly? Verse 10 again. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. 
And verse 10 goes on to unpack what worthy, God-pleasing lifestyle looks like. Firstly, fruitful service. It says this, bearing fruit in every good work. You see, as we grow in our grasp of Christ's supremacy and His sufficiency, we increasingly realize what a great honor and privilege it is to serve Him with our lives and our resources. We will say, Christ is the supreme Lord. How can I better serve my Lord in this present life situation in which He's placed me with the resources which He's entrusted to me? Another aspect of this life pleasing to God is this, a growing knowledge of God. Uh, Verse 10 continues, growing in the knowledge of God. But of course we know it's not just a head knowledge, but a personal relational knowledge with Christ as our Lord and Savior. Through Christ we are reconciled to God and we are now living in that breathing, heart-pumping relationship. The third thing that flows out of this uh, God-pleasing lifestyle is a tenacious endurance. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. You see, the more we see with clear eyes Christ's supremacy as Lord over all and His sufficiency for all we need. The more clearly we see that, the more we will become spiritually robust. The more we will be committed to living in the light of God's salvation story arc, come what may. The more resolute we will be that nothing will deflect me from trusting in Christ, the very last breath of my life. And another thing we see which flows out of this God-pleasing, Christ-centered lifestyle is joyful gratitude. Verse 11 continues, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. As we grow in our grasp of Christ's supremacy and His sufficiency, we come to see ever more clearly when He returns, we will have everything. We will have then our inheritance, which is at the present still in the future. And that will translate into a deeper sense of grateful joy in the present as we wait patiently and live now under Christ's rule. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme Lord of all, the sufficient Savior who gives us all we need. He reveals you fully and he reconciles us to you fully. Help, we pray, us to live more in the light of Christ's Lordship and his sufficiency for all we need. Amen.